Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and here we are at episode number seven. Happy to have you here. Happy to have you joining me for these great conversations that we've been doing here about uh, your favorite subject and mine, old school professional wrestling. Uh, got a great guest today, somebody who certainly fits that description, who has been in the business uh, since the 1970s, incredible stories, and uh, I knew him when we crossed paths in WWE, and we get a lot to talk about, and we'll get to it in a few minutes. want to talk about a few things before then. First of all, I just want to say that uh, just the other night, I because uh, you know I've been curious now, we're seven episodes in, I was curious how this new podcast of mine is doing and uh, had a conversation with Mr. Brian last of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, which as you must know, carries shut up and wrestle. Um, and uh, apparently the show is building up a nice little audience. So thank you out there. Uh, those who have been listening week to week, and I've been getting some good feedback and good responses. So I'm kind of excited that um, this seems to be connecting with some people. So uh, I hope it continues to do so. Um, anyway, also, I got the latest issue, or I should say issue number 18 of Inside the Ropes magazine in the mail just the other day. That's the one with Ronda Rousey on the cover. And it's got my story in there on um, the rise and fall of Triple H. So uh, pretty in-depth, pretty long story, and it really covers everything right up to the present day. So I hope you check it out. You can get it at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. I uh, want to make a little mention of something that Les Thatcher told me about a few days ago, something specific here. So um, as you probably know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Les as our guest on the podcast, and we mentioned that he has some old issues of the original WWWF magazine and the NWA magazine from the 70s that he worked on for sale um, at his email address, which is lesthatcher28 at gmail.com for those interested, but apparently he received an email from somebody that he accidentally deleted who was looking for some of these. So if you are the person that sent the email with the title line stars of the eighties, please resend your request to Les Thatcher because he accidentally deleted your email. So again, if, if that was your email stars of the eighties, please uh, reach out to him again uh, at the email address of lesthatcher28 at gmail.com. Um, okay, so moving right along, um, the Sheik book. So let me give you a quick update on that. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. My biography of the Sheik is now, uh, God, I believe it's, wow, yeah, four weeks away. We're about a month away now from the book's release on April 12th. And I am about to go, in fact, as you're listening to this, it'll right be, be right at the time I am beginning 
to be in the recording studio for Tantor Media up in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. I'll be in the recording studio recording the audiobook version of Blood and Fire. It's going to take me about two weeks to do that. So it is all coming together, folks. And I'll let you know how you can get that audiobook once it becomes available. Um, probably won't be available until a little bit after the print and digital editions of the book. But uh, for now, let's get to our guest for this week. So the guest is uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard. You may have heard of him, the Doctor of Desire. Maybe you know him as one half of the heavenly bodies. Uh, I hope you don't only know him as one half of the body Donnas. I'm sure he wouldn't like that. Um, you may know him from his days wrestling uh, pretty much all over the country uh, in Texas and uh, in Memphis and many, many other places. And actually, uh, we crossed paths when he was working as a trainer in WWE when I was there in the early 2000s. So for those that know, uh, before the developmental systems, even before OVW and HWA and things, and certainly before NXT, Dr. Tom was heavily involved, and even, even after that period, with training uh, really a whole new generation of WWF and WWE superstars, uh, really, especially uh, being felt in the Attitude Era. Uh, he's somebody that worked with The Rock when he was unknown, you know, someone who worked with Mark Henry, someone who worked with Kurt Angle. A lot of people from that era um, worked and are very close with Dr. Tom. And I have been uh, honored to call him a friend now for over 20 years. And I was happy that he agreed to do this. So we had a nice little conversation uh, about his memories of wrestling history, because, of course, he's been around Houston wrestling and Amarillo wrestling since he was a kid and a very young man and, and really made his living in the business all through the 80s and 90s and beyond. And, and currently now runs a wrestling school, which he'll be talking about a little bit in this conversation. So I'm going to take you to the conversation right now. Okay, so right now I would like to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle somebody that I have known going back uh, over 20 years to my WWE days, uh, back when he was a, a very, very valued trainer of some of the hugest stars of that era. But he goes back way further, um, not too far. I'm not going to make you seem too ancient, Tom, but, but he goes back much further than that in the business to some of the great territorial days of wrestling growing up as a fan. And coming up in the business, uh, even in the late 1970s, all the way through the 80s, which is going to be the stuff that I'm going to love to talk about. Um, he's somebody that I'm sure you know, but you may not know everything about the early parts of his career and his fandom. And he is the one and only, may I still call you, the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here at Shut Up In, Shut Up and Wrestle, on Shut Up and Wrestle. And I wish a lot of people today would just shut the hell up and go out and wrestle. But that's just my opinion. You see, that's why I call the podcast that. See, I'm trying not to be too confrontational about it and come on here and talk about it every week. I just figure I call the podcast that and people will know where I stand on the issue. I think they get the message. I got it pretty clear. So if they don't, then it's their problem. But yeah, man, very cool. Great to be here. It's, it's I'm glad to have you here. Is your, uh, just as a curiosity, is your doctorate in desire still valid or has it expired? I would hope my, my uh, desire doctrine has uh, rolled over over the years, but you'd have to ask my wife. I'm not so sure anymore, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, you know, it's not that kind of podcast, so we will. Um, okay. If well, uh, I, well, I'm not that desired in other places. <laughs> I think I've burned a few bridges, but you know, in Knoxville, Tennessee, I think uh, some some people want me. I'm not so sure about that either, though. But you see, it's almost like these days. Um, that's kind of a badge of honor. I mean, you're really in in good company. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> among people who who kind of know the business and know how it's supposed to be, and it's just not always that way anymore. You know. No, it's not. And it can be baffling and and satisfying all at the same time. So I'm happy with it. Yes, definitely. And and you know, it's it's one of those things. Like for me personally, I I I still follow it. I mean, I still watch wrestling and i still follow the current product and the major companies and everything it's just my preference is the you know the older stuff the older generation and if i have a choice of what i'm going to watch it's usually going to be something like that you know if i'm if i'm going to stream something or whatever well again a different culture different time different world back then and uh, it was presented differently and today it's it's just i think uh, appealing to a younger audience. And it's always been a young audience. You want the, the the new crowd to come in, the new kids to come in, if you will. And the world keeps changing. And as it does, uh, things keep rolling out to satisfy that urge to do something else and or to figure out what, what everybody's going to like. And, and uh, I don't know that anybody's got the right recipe all the time, but there have been moments in wrestling where it's really hit. And, and I, I remember, in fact, growing up, I thought that was the golden age of wrestling. I thought we had the greatest wrestlers. And all of a sudden you had the attitude era in different areas of WWE. But um, it, it, I think it all just comes down to what era you were born in, what, what time of the, uh, of, of the millennium or whatever uh, the universe calls it these days. Uh, that you're born in and, and are, are presented in, in uh, the first thing you see, you know, what, what hits you. It's, it's funny because that does seem to be the constant. It's like what you grew up with is what you will always love and what you will always think is the best. And, you know, it's funny to me because I try to be aware of that and not get too critical because the funny thing is, you know, the wrestling that I enjoyed as a kid, let's say in the eighties, which I look back on and go, oh, boy, I wish it could be like that. The reality is, as you probably well know, that back in the 80s, there were old timers, you know, from the 50s and 60s, let's say, who were saying that that was garbage and that was a clown show and it was ridiculous and it exposed the business. And so that kind of thing is really nothing new in a way. Right. No, no, it's, it's, it, you're exactly right. I mean, even in the, the 1930s, you had your clown shows and you had your hokiness and things like that and then you had your so-called real wrestlers out there who hated it uh because of the authenticity but every era has had the guys like a a jim lundis or a strangler lewis or a, a luthez terry funk a jack briscoe a harley race and these days you got the brock lesnar's you got the Drew mcintyre's you got the uh, the the head of the table sure. and so yeah man i mean uh but but then you also had your your other end of the spectrum, which was the clown shows and the guys who relied on gimmicks, which nothing wrong with that. If you can make money at it and do it and make it work, it's fantastic. I always say, you know, at the end of the day, and maybe this goes back from when I was, you know, kind of working from an inside perspective and having to think about it, not as a fan. I try to separate what I personally like my own enjoyment and what I know is going to be good for business. And sometimes those two things 
honestly, a lot of times those two things don't line up. <laughs> well, right. And, and nobody, I don't think anybody could tell you what's going to line up when, because it's all uh, just trying a bunch of stuff and keeping what works. So even when WWE was trying a bunch of stuff, um, a lot of it happened by chance, by accident, just by the stars aligning and, and things happened the way they did. Steve Austin was never supposed to be anything more than the ringmaster and a mid-card guy with a mouthpiece like Ted DiBiase. How, how off kilter would, does that sound now, knowing what Austin went and did? So nobody really knows until it happens, until it takes effect. And that was that lightning in a bottle that uh, happened to come WWE's way. And Austin had all the negatives you would look at. He was black tights, black boots, black knee pads, black vest, bald head, goatee, Texas accent. How in the hell could he get over? Right. And and, yeah, sometimes you just have to kind of let things happen, which I think is the problem sometimes when, when people don't want to just kind of let things happen, because like you said, it wasn't even just a WWF thing. I mean, Eric Bischoff didn't see much in Austin either. He just saw him. If anything, he saw him as like a throwback to, the regional Southern stuff that he was trying to get away from in a way with his accent and everything. And even though he said he was from Hollywood, it was clear that, you know, this was a Southern guy. I think it was something that nobody saw except Austin himself saw it, you know, and maybe Jr. Well, Jr. Austin, but I mean, uh, and that, that goes back to the key element. I think the number one element every athlete has to have, every performer has to have, uh, is that performer's ego, that confidence. Without the confidence uh, in yourself, nobody else is going to have it either. And Austin certainly had confidence by the time he got there, and he was getting frustrated early on. But that that one promo, I think, is the one that sent him over the edge with Austin 316, and yeah. uh, it took off, and Steve carried the ball. So I wanted to get into uh, some stuff about you know when you were even just a young fan yourself. But before we do that, I wanted to mention one thing before I forget, because it just popped into my head when we were talking about the shut up and wrestle thing. So the the title of this podcast goes back to actually when I was working at WWE, and it's actually very mildly, not really directly uh, involved you, because it was at the time when you and Kevin Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong here, you guys were hosting Bite This, right, for a little yes. while? Correct. Which, for those that don't remember, was the uh, was the web show for WWE or even WWF.com back then. So I wrote a column because Shane was kind of like pushing us to be more edgy and write things that were not always just fluffy and 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 stuff that was more critical. So I maybe yeah. took it a little too far and I took him too seriously. And I wrote a column about how it was called Shut Up and Wrestle. And I was writing about how you know, there was too much talking on the show and the promos were too long and every show starts with Triple H talking for 20 minutes and and we need to, which at the time it did, and yeah. we need to get away with, from that and everything. And I remember like everybody was saying, and this is before social media, but every on the web and it was my 15 minutes of fame, everyone on earth was saying, oh, this guy's going to be fired. Half the people were saying, this guy's going to get fired. And the other half of the people were saying, this is a work which it wasn't. I was just going rogue and I got away with it somehow. I don't know how. Maybe it's because people just they just didn't care enough to make an issue out of it. But I remember you and Kevin were mentioned it on Bite This, like you kind of 
were trying to to like prod me and make it into like a like a, a I think Kevin even called me the erstwhile WWE magazine writer insinuating that I was going to be out the door, which it was all in good fun. Right, right, right. Yeah, we had we had fun doing that. We had fun picking on uh, anything we could find because it we got a little, you know, as 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 social media got uh, bigger. I mean, I understood it, but I I doesn't mean I necessarily liked it. But bike this was was a lot of fun, and when we found stuff like that, yeah, we hit on it uh, when we could, if we could. I remember too. I I wrote one of my columns about how I think you had, and again, I was just trying to get views and clicks and i'm sorry for this but you wrote something about how uh it went with the wrestlers you were training you gave them a list of old wrestlers to look up and watch their matches and people they should look at which was an incredibly solid list of what would pertain to what they need to know to get over and be great performers in their era and i got on my soapbox and i made this long list which made no sense because it had people on it that you can't even watch their matches because there's no footage that exists. I'm, I'm putting like Frank Gotch on there and people right, like that, right. which it, it's all well and good, but you can't see them, you know? And, and, and that was another thing that you guys roasted me for on bite this. Well, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> rightfully I, I, we, so rightfully we, so. Yeah. But we had, we, we, we knew, I mean, I, I, I kind of got a, got a feel for it anyway, early on, but, but see guys like Jim Lundus from the thirties, there are matches out there about Jim yes. Lundus and they're horrible. They're unwatchable. You can't, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for the entertainment value, but for that culture, for that era, Jim Lundis was the Hulk Hogan of his time. He was 5'7". Five, 5'7", seven. Yeah. Five, seven, a short guy, a small guy. How could a guy like that get over? It was authenticity. So I understood a lot of it. And, and man, I've looked at that list over the years, too, and I've seen it, and I'm going, oh, my God, did I really put that guy's name down? <laughs> because you wouldn't, you wouldn't know who the Infernos were. You wouldn't know who J.C. Dykes was, unless you were in Tennessee or Texas and you saw these guys growing up. You don't know those gimmicks, and there's not a lot of information out there on them now, even with the Internet and all the databases we have. So, uh, but, but, but some of the key things that I always look for and told us, the guys do, and I think most of them were on that list, was about the the way they pre were presented and the way they came out and had that confidence and had that aura of authenticity. So that was what that was about. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, like you mentioned the Infernos, you know, I didn't grow up in that era or that area. And yet, you know, just in my work as a historian and researching things, it's like you come across names like that where you get an idea of, of like, wow, these were major important stars in the especially in their regions and yet you don't they're just not talked about anymore it's kind of scary how that happens sometimes even when they make lists of most important tag teams of all time blah 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 they're never on it and they probably should be well you know the the winners get to write history anyway so <laughs> yeah. i mean that, that, that's cool but, but but real quick because this this just hit me my god uh i talked about this the other night with uh, you had two Nazis, the von Bronner brothers, uh, 20 years after World War II, and they were managed by gentleman Saul Weingroff. 20 years after World War II, you have this Jewish sleazeball at ringside managing these two bald headed German guys with the swastikas and the iron crosses on their boots. It was 
I couldn't realize, I didn't understand as a kid why they had so much heat. And then later on, as I learned history and I went, oh my God, right. that's heavy. Yeah, it's pretty stiff. Yeah, and, and that was kind of a, a thing because uh, when I was writing um, my book about the Sheik, another thing with him is one of his Oh, managers... by the way, stop, stop. That's next on my list to get the book, man. The Sheik. Okay. I, I got to find out what you found out about the Sheik, <laughs> man. I, I got a great story about him that really. Anyway, but go ahead. I no, no, no. About the Sheik. Go no, ahead. no, no. I, I'm going to have to get you one. But um, yeah, but one of the things with him was one of his managers was Eddie the Brain Creechman, who was this over the top caricature of like the Israeli Jewish guy. And he had the big star of David around his neck. And this is during, you know, PLO and Israel, and he's managing this crazy Arab maniac yeah. wrestler, uh, you know, just like this traitor. How could you do this? You know, and he's coming out even and saying that how much he loves Palestine and all this stuff, this, the, the nation of Palestine. It's weird how I guess you could. That's a whole you do a whole show on that. You could get away with stuff like that back then, but well, uh, you, you, can't. you could you could to to an extent because you know Waldo von Eric got kicked almost got uh, I don't remember which show it was, but someplace in Ohio or, or up around that way. He almost got him kicked off the air. You know why? You you, you don't know about Waldo no. von Eric. I know about no. him, but I don't know this particular story. Well, well, I, I don't know if I can say this and I will you cut it out if you want. But he said on television, he, he went on and, and asked the announcer, he says, do you know the difference between a Jew and an apple pie? He said, apple pies don't scream when you put them in the oven. And it was like, oh, my God. And there was an uproar. Yeah, wow. it was pretty heavy. It was, it was pretty I, heavy. But that, that's what wrestling was back then. You played on the events of the world. You played on the, the villainous characters, the Russians, the Germans uh whatever villains were out there japanese right japanese yeah yeah the thing, crazy. what what i find so interesting and this is even this even goes beyond wrestling and this goes to things like hogan's heroes and stuff like that where it's interesting yeah. to me how the gener you know the generation that actually grew up with nazi germany and fighting them and going off to war and everything it's almost like it was easier to make fun of them then than it is now when there's nobody alive anymore who actually had to deal with the real life third Reich. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. It is strange. And I've thought about that lately too, in the last few years with the cancel culture and, and all the things going on that people are so sensitive about where back in the sixties, seventies and, and somewhat in the eighties, not too much, but um, yeah, I take that back in the eighties. There was a lot of that too. But a lot of people, Russians, I mean, but the Hogan's heroes was making fun of the, uh, the Germans and the, and the guys in the, in the camp were the ones who were the right. Uh, always trying to play jokes or even that. something like the producers, you know, Mel Brooks who, yeah. who hated, of course, always talked about how much he hated Hitler and hated the Nazis and his way of coping with it was making them look really stupid all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and even like if you talk to some wrestlers, they were doing the same thing. Like Nikolai Volkov, I remember, told me in an interview of how, you know, he was Croatian. He hated the Soviets because of what they did to his country and everything. And so his mission was to make them look like idiots. That was right. what he liked to do. Right. And, and, and you were able to do anything in professional wrestling. You could be any kind of character you wanted, as long as you made it work. You had the Mongols, you had uh, all kind of stuff, man. And it was, it was a, it was a really good time because the guys took their, their characters a little more seriously. I would, I would dare to say back in the sixties, seventies and possibly eighties. 
Yeah, because they had to back then, right? I mean, the Sheik being probably the number one example of doing that. But I got to tell you, I you know when I started watching, I started watching wrestling in the 1960s, and I first became aware of the Sheik through the magazines. And this guy was was he, he was he was uh, scary. He was he didn't speak any English. He he was uh, go he would go out and just stab the guy in the head, and he would bleed. They would bleed, and it would it would be horrible and great all at the same time and the first time she came to houston by this time i had already started working for paul bosch as his assistant and they needed a snake for the sheik to come out to to the ring with i was barely able to get in the dressing room back then usually in the hallway or bring somebody some coffee if i wasn't working for doing anything for paul but i would go in and then i'd go right back out but i could all get a get an idea what was going on and see the, the match talking over here and the other guys talking over here, but I had to bring the snake handler back to the dressing room in the, in the little hallway they had before you went out and the sheet came in to the hallway. And, uh, I remember he looked at it and goes, well, that's a big song, bitch, isn't it? And I went, oh my God. You know, but, but I was, I, I knew it was a work, but I didn't know. I didn't know about the sheet. And, um, then I, I, he, he did a loop with us when I started working in San Antonio, and, and and he was a funny guy. He was an entertaining guy, and and he would talk in the dressing room and talk and all this stuff. But I, it amazed me how committed he was to the gimmick, uh, where he never broke character. It's like Abdullah the Butcher, the same thing. Never broke character. You never saw him unless he was in a confined uh, in a sanctuary, like the locker room, like somewhere right. in the, in the car with the boys or something like that. And these days with social media, everybody's on talking about how uh, they went out to eat with their opponents or did what a great match. I want to congratulate you on that stuff. Again, I understand everybody knows it is what it is, but for Christ's sake, don't throw it in everybody's face. How about right. I have a little mystery to you? So. I always say that too. Don't rub my face in it. You know, I mean, yeah. there's a difference between don't insult my intelligence. Okay, fine. But also don't rub my face in it. I want to enjoy this. You know, I, I saw the blue man group on Broadway. Okay. My wife got a sixth. I, I I've just always, I love acts like that. Yeah. And these guys did some fantastic stuff. Have you ever seen them live? No, but I wanted to for a million years. Yeah, man, man. It, it They, they have a gun where they, Load with marshmallows. The guy didn't miss a one. He shoots it from half across, all the way across the stage into the guy's mouth. Didn't miss one. Everything was timed. Everything was great. So at the end of the show, uh, I mean, I, 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 there's very few things that get me that excited anymore. <laughs> get, get me that enthusiastic. So my wife says, why don't you go take a picture with him? Because they're out greeting people, but they're not talking. So my wife takes a picture and uh, she looked, we look at it and he goes, uh, the, the guy standing next to me, the blue man group, he says, you want to take another one? And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, I mean, I know, but I don't want to know right then. I just want to right. live there for a little bit. But but stuff like that intrigues me because you got to be committed. Andy Kaufman was great. Guys like that who just went all the way with it and wouldn't break for anybody uh, until it was time. And if it wasn't time, they weren't going to do it. Right. Well, the, the sheik, the, what, what everybody kept telling me when I would interview people similar to what you just said, how he just had a way where like once he came through the curtain, he was a completely different person. Even if you had spoken to him before, like I talked right. to a couple of photographers who were like, OK, I went out there and all of a sudden this guy is, I think, legitimately trying to kill me and I don't know right. what I'm supposed to do. And I'm trying to talk reason with him and he won't. 
But once he came back through again, it was like, boom, he's back right. to Ed Farhat. And it was amazing how he could do that, you know. Terry Funk was another guy who did the same thing in the locker room. He was playing and having a fun time and ribbing everybody. But when he went out there, uh, he would still, he, he, yeah, son of a gun. He pushed me one time. I was, uh, at the, at a convention and I was trying to tell Terry, not yet. You're not on yet. And he went, don't you touch me. You son of a bitch. He had his towel in his hand. He's popping me in the face. And I'm going, God damn it, Terry, please. And, and we came back, everything was fine, but, but, but it's just those guys don't break character and they don't care who you are. If, if, if you're in front of the people, if, if just one person doesn't know, he's not going to let go. He's going to, he's going to keep being Terry. Right. Right. No, absolutely. It's, it's kind of a lost art, but um, you dropped a name before, which I can't just leave lying there. Cause I, I want to talk about Paul Bosch and um, being around that office and around him, just what a fascinating figure, just in, incredible, the amount of, talk about history, I mean, even just his own collection was legendary, and the pictures and things that he had, what was it like being around that office? Well, it was it was very, very cool, because, and the way I even got that job is incredible. My brother Ken uh, got me a job selling shoes at Montgomery Wards uh, during the summer, and I lasted two weeks. And here's why, because it was number one, not what I wanted to do by any stretch of imagination. I don't know who would want to sell shoes, no disrespect, but the point is it's, uh, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. And I had a horrible attitude and I went down to pick up our tickets one Friday or one, uh, one day of the week, I guess it was. And I was telling the ladies behind the counter about, uh, my job at selling shoes. Prior to this, uh, we helped, I think Bruce was there too, and some other guys who lived in town. We helped Paul move his office from 2022 San Jacinto at the corner of Gray, that's what he said every Friday, to 1919 Caroline at Pierce. It was just a couple blocks away, but we moved all his stuff over there. It's bigger office, and, and we put everything up and helped him get in. But as I'm telling these ladies at the ticket office about the gig, Paul came out of his office. He happened to be in the hallway and came out of his office and said, that job is going to give you stories you can tell for a lifetime. How would you like to work here? How would I like to work here? My God, is, is, does the Pope shit in the woods? Is the bear Catholic? Come on. So uh, he paid me $75 a week, and I just found a copied check in our file cabinet out there last month. Uh, $75 a week to come in, sell tickets. If the grass needed cutting, if Paul needed errands to run, oh my God, this is, do I want to work here? Jesus, can I work here forever? Yeah. But it was during the summer that when I had to go back to school, I was working as Paul's assistant sitting next to him at ringside on Friday nights. So, and looking back on some of the stuff, the, the matches like the Terry Funk versus Harley race match in 1977 that I tell people they should watch for the psychology and what's the less is more and things like that. You can see me sitting next to Paul at ringside from 1977. I'm going, here we go. So this, this wasn't supposed to happen, but it did. Bruce got a lot of Paul's collection. There was a great, there was a big poster of uh, Mill Mosteris coming off of the cross body block on Toro Tanaka. 
that was in the office, very prominent behind the ticket sellers. And Bruce got that picture. And I went to see Bruce last summer in Stanford. And he gave me that picture to put on our wall in JPWA. So that picture, you know, and it says Mil Moscris diving on Tanaka, whatever says photo by Paul Bosch. So that's on our, that's on our, my wall, our wall, Glenn's in my wall at JPWA in Knoxville. And uh, so some of the stuff from Paul's collection has made my way, made its way here. Uh, some of his statues, some of his stuff. So that's, that's, that's pretty incredible in itself from coming to Houston at 10 years old, watching Paul Bosch in the Coliseum, watching these magnificent stories unfold, these gladiators like Wahoo McDaniel, Johnny Valentine, and uh, to work my way up from going in the office, working in the office, selling tickets, to to being his, his assistant, and then now having some of the part of his history uh, kind of fold over into my history. So that that was Paul was a great he was a great man. He he had a lot of stories to tell. He was proud of his uh, military background. He was proud of wrestling. Uh, Conrad Thompson got Bruce, I think, in an auction. Uh, this plaque that Paul had outside his house. Mm. It said, welcome to the house that wrestling built. Just a cool thing to have, knowing the history that Paul Bosch is a part of in the business. So he would, I mean, he, he was a mentor to me. He was a mentor to Bruce. He was a mentor to a lot of people. Uh, and then looking back, realizing the impact he really did have on the business. And plus you had to understand the politics back then and all the behind the scenes stuff that went on. You learn, you, you, you learn about that. Right. Right. After, after everybody goes away, you know, even, I mean? even some of the things that might've been happening when you were a kid at the time and you just being a kid were clueless about probably, you know, yeah. promotional wars and things going on and promotional wars, personal uh, things, personal right. uh, uh, conflicts, interest, and, and all going on at the same time. And uh, uh, once, once you learn about that and learn about how one thing kind of fed into another. And this is why this happened because years ago that happened. And, and then even before that happened years ago, this happened and, and it overlays and it's the, the fascinating thing. And that's why I dig your books because the history part of it, nobody is, is that, I don't want to say nobody, but a lot of guys don't think it's, it's important to learn about the history of the business who came before them uh because they're not interested but i always say what's old will be new again and you might find something really cool that you can make your own you know you know how how, how right. Matt got his gimmick you know with the mandible claw i don't you think don't I know can. how Mitt got the mandible claw oh you mean from from sam shepherd yes sir well right. he, got, he got the idea from jim cornett right but that was where jim got it man sam shepherd sam shepherd wasn't in the business i think a year I want to say maybe three months or six months. And that was it. His short time in the business, he had one move that, that would get over. And Jim Cornette knew about it. He's right. a historian. And he gave it to Mick. Mick was looking for a hole he could do with anybody. So that's why it's important to find out about the history. You can get something. It's like panning for gold. And I'm going to steal this 
from Sin Bodhi. He came in and gave me a great analogy real quick. Then I'll let you talk. How about that? <laughs> no, please. But, but you're the but guest. Talk. Cool. <laughs> but 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 Sin said it's like panning for gold. You go down to the river and you, you sift through it. And you may just come up with a bunch of rocks and mud. But then you may find a nugget of gold in there. You may find just a little bit of nuggets you can use out of 50 matches you watched or something you read about. And you make it, you get that one little nugget and you expand on it or you take away or you just make it somewhat different. But but that's the basis for it. And that's one of the things we do talk about at the Jacob Pritchard Wrestling Academy, by the way. Uh, but that's that, that's not of interest to the majority of the guys out there because they do believe it's all about the moves. But what it's really about is about the feeling and emotion that, that you give out and the people get back. And that's something that, I, that really turned me on as a kid is understanding when I'm watching this stuff, these guys put their heart into it. They, they actually believed and made you believe. So. Well, that, I mean, and that is, timeless you know i mean even even brock lesnar they, there was just an interview recently which i don't know if you saw where and he rarely gives interviews where he said the same exact thing because because nowadays every you know people criticize him because they say well he doesn't even wrestle anymore he just does these german suplexes and blah 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 well he doesn't have to he, right. he, he understands what working is you know he gets it and for my money and for a lot of people he's he's one of the most unique uh, attractions out there right now because he stands out and he has been for a long time and he was talking about that how guys just think about moves now and they're not thinking of the bigger picture of trying to tell a story i mean i know that's the cliche that the trainers are always telling these guys but it's a cliche because it's true well it's about the emotions about the emotion the feeling yeah, yeah it's about the feeling you're not doing the moves i've never heard one person walk out of the arena and say, man, that John Cena put a great hammerlock on tonight. John knows, knows the basics and fundamentals, but he doesn't have to resort to that because he's past that point. If he needs to go back to it, if he gets lost and needs to grab a hold, he knows how to transition. But the point is, he had to get a foundation under him, and he did. And then he learned how to be a star, and that's the next step. And uh, so did Lesnar, and so did a lot of other guys. But but it is important to, uh, to find out who came before and why. And why was Bruno San Martino so over? What was the history of Bruno even getting to New York? How did Bruno beat a guy like Buddy Rogers in, what, 47, 30 seconds, whatever it was? You know, I, I, one of the coolest things to me was, was even having lunch or dinner, was dinner, with Bruno and Sal Corrente in Tampa. And I got to ask him uh, the famous question, because I've been reading about Buddy and Bruno at that time, and, and Buddy's talking about he he came off of, out of the hospital to do the job to Bruno, and, and Bruno says, oh, my God, he was wrestling the night before. He'd been wrestling all around the boroughs in New York, so that's all crap. And, and you know, I'm hearing it from the horse's mouth, and it's Bruno San Martino. You know, there's only one Bruno San Martino, and, and that – to me alone, it's it's like, it's to me it was like talking to a president or a former president, a guy of that high stature. And you, did you have the opportunity to meet Bruno? I did. Uh, at the very end of my time at WWE, it was before they had reconciled. Even it was because um, Arnold Skolan passed away, oh. and I wanted to interview him. And even then, they were like, "Oh, he, you shouldn't talk to him." Or, and I said, "Screw that." This is, you know, his manager died. I want an interview with him to get his thoughts on him. And we got to talk uh, from that. 
but what a nice man. I mean, for this business and for what he had been through, he has every right to be bitter, <laughs> had every right to be bitter. I don't know if he's bitter with you, but but he was he was just a nice man to everybody uh, that I ever saw him interact with. Yeah, he he seemed like a genuinely honorable person. And, you know, and not everybody is for sure, especially no. in the wrestling business. So so he stood out for being that way. But, you know, it, it the thing for me is I think it, it just is behooves people especially if you if you're in the business if you're a wrestler if you're if you're learning about it for for a professional reason it just makes sense to learn about the history of the industry that you're in and not just not just what you remember or what you watched when you were a kid which is great but more than that expand your knowledge base don't act like if i didn't never heard of it then it must not be important like you've got to open your mind up more than that, because I think that's some of the problem today. And I don't I don't like to harp too much about today's product, but it's because of this echo chamber where you have the the wrestlers now who grew up watching a certain kind of wrestling, let's say in the 90s. And that's all they know. So so it's just like, OK, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, they were great. But you're missing what sometimes what made them great. It, it wasn't just. You know, you, you know what I'm yes, saying, yes, right? Yes, I do. But why is it that Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson can study old boxers, former boxers? I think Ali studied, I, I want to say Jack Johnson, but it could be wrong about a, a hook punch that he did. And, and, and he studied and studied film, learned it, watched it, watched the footwork, watched all these elements. Everybody who's a football fan, I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people who are football fans know Lyle Alzado, know about the Pittsburgh Steelers, know about the uh, the Raiders, know about these, these outlaw teams who had these larger-than-life personas, larger-than-life characters. Basketball. Why do other athletes study these guys and study moves and study footwork and study little things, keys, but yet professional wrestlers think, they don't have to do any of that. All they have to do is go out there and do their thing and they'll get over. It's amazing what you can learn. Even some quotes, even some of the things like Johnny Valentine, who said, I may not be able to make you believe in wrestling, but I can damn sure make them believe in me. Well, that's the attitude you have to take. If, if you don't believe it, I don't think anybody else can. And I'm not saying go out there and be hokey, but Brock Lesnar understands business, as you said. Brock's authentic. He goes out there and he just turns the volume up. And he doesn't care because he knows who he is. He knows what the perception of him is. And he's going to do it. He understands that, mis that mystery and the part that people want to be unpredictable. And, and want to be shocked and amazed and, and look like, oh, my God, was that supposed to happen? Well, we don't know. And it would look so good that you'll never know. Uh, so, you know, th those are key elements, I think, that are missing today a lot of times. But at the same time, you get some good matches here and there. Well, just as a whole, compared to, say, you know, going back to those Paul Bosch days, there's a lot less structure, you know, in the business today. It's kind of like the Wild West, especially if you're not working – for the handful of major companies, it's just sort of anything goes a lot of the time. So you're, you're not getting that same kind of like quality control, I guess you might want to use the term because even WWE can be criticized and there's certainly issues with their product that I would have. But the one thing I respect about what they do is it's a well-oiled machine and there's discipline and they, and they try to have, whether you like it or not, it's a house style and they know what they want and they get people to do it, you know? Well, they do. Uh, I, I just think what, 
what is lacking, and again, I don't want to criticize the product either, man. I, I, I hear, I've talked to friends of mine before, and they say what they need to do is get people who know how to work. I say, well, who is that? Because I think they're looking for people who know how to work. They're not looking for the crappiest wrestlers, the crappiest workers out there. They want the best. But not everybody has that capacity to understand that there are certain intangible elements and we talk about the it factor all day long but you know when somebody walks into a room let's just say daniel bryan walks into a room he will never be a star he will never be a top guy he <laughs> winning the world championship get off come on but yet seventy thousand people were standing yes 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 when he beat triple h and whoever else he beat that day that that time for randy orton yeah. randy orton for the for the world championship so it's that intangible it's not that he was a giant it's the fact that daniel bryan connected and resonated with people and and they got behind a guy like that organically it wasn't pushed daniel bryan was never meant to be pushed down anybody's throat he was going to be there and be gone but he proved he had it he proved he had that whatever it is people are looking for and it's hard to tell somebody how to be that that's Daniel Bryan, but you have to be authentic inside and then be able to connect with people. CM Punk's another guy. My God, he will never be a star in WWE. He doesn't have it. He, he doesn't have a look. He's not a bodybuilder. He's not a tall guy. But for Christ's sake, one of the most popular guys still in the business after seven years away, he had the crowd eating out of the palm of his hand. So whatever he's doing and however he's doing it needs to be looked at studied and and uh you can copy it but make it your own we're all guilty of larceny we still all of us do take it and run with it man punk did daniel bryan did a lot of other guys who never were supposed to make it did that's kind of what you need to do i mean that's the whole point right of what we're talking about is you, you steal from the best and you know because that because they stole from who came before them and and that's just kind of how it goes and and the business you know you you build on what came before and and i think what's missing uh, i've thought about this too are the car rides with the stories mm. and, the, and the fun that goes on during the 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 late night drives and things like this and and that's the guys that i watched um that's where they learned you know on those rides going home in the arena, in the locker room, pulling ribs, having fun. That was the authenticity. Roddy Piper was a wild man. Terry Funk was a wild man, but in two different ways. At the same time, it was exactly the same way. Uh, he just, it was presented differently. Terry Funk was that wild and crazy middle agent, and Roddy Piper was nuts, but Roddy was the coolest guy in the world. He really, really was. And you could steal his attitude from the back and put it up front in a promo uh, and come back. And, and then his mind was always working. And if you studied what these guys went through, even growing up or in the business, some of the stuff Piper went through, some of the stuff Terry Funk went through, any of you guys, any of the top guys, middle guys, uh, uh, curtain jerker guys, they all have a story. They all have a story to tell. One of my favorite guys ever to work with, talk to, is George South. Been around forever. Been around forever in the South. He did job forever, and he did them better than anybody else. 
he made his name because he understood how to get how to get the most out of the business. Now, he's revered around here as a legend because he loves the business still. He still has that passion. He'll still tell you stories, and he still knows how to talk to the young guys and get those. After you've heard a good story or a good laugh, it does something to you, and it, it does something to me anyway, and it helps me create even more. Uh, if somebody's a good storyteller, I want to hear a good story. Tell me a good story. It'll get me thinking too. Same thing when you go in the ring. If you tell me a story in the ring and I can follow it and you get me excited or, or just you have some unpredictable stuff going on, that's what the audience wants to see, in my opinion. And the crowd wants to see good, solid action, good, solid performance. And if it means flying, great. But it also means connecting and getting emotionally involved. George South is a great name, by the way, because um, uh, one of the writers that I've worked with for years is Keith Elliott Greenberg. And I remember that he had a, a great uh, relationship with George and they would talk a lot. And um, he's one of those people that if you're a fan, especially if you're not from that part of the country, you may have no idea that this guy is so but so revered, so respected yeah. by, I mean, Ric Flair and the people yes. at the top we'll talk about George South. I mean, that is somebody that if you know, you know, you know, right. another guy's Bob cook. We we've watched Bob cook versus Dick Murdoch from Atlanta TV, just to explain the situation. Bob cook's job was to put Dick Murdoch over. Dick was the star. Bob was the guy to get, get beat, but Murdoch took, a couple arm drags from him. Murdoch sold a punch for him. Murdoch was selling in the beginning, but he was selling like he was astonished this guy was getting in, anything in on him. But the reason he did that, because he liked Bob. Most of the guys liked Bob, liked George, and a lot of those guys around Atlanta who knew what they were there for and knew and respected the guys they were in the ring with. And they the guys felt it back. So they gave them a little something on TV. And uh, that's how it worked. You know, if you go out there and just kick the hell out of the guy, it means nothing. I remember hearing about how when Flair did that, that he got criticized for it. People said, you gave him too much. You made him look too good. He's a nobody. It, it makes the world title look, you know, uh, unimportant or whatever. But but he respected him that much. Well, but yeah, that, and, and that's what the people who don't understand the the machinery going on backstage. Um Rick knew he could get over regardless. Rick knew because in the end, Dick kicked the hell out of Bob Cook. In the end, Rick Flair was a world champion and beat the guy convincingly. But at the same time, it kind of gave this guy a rub. And, and why not? Why not? Some guys didn't want to give anybody a rub, but, but guys like Flair, guys like Murdoch, because they knew they were confident enough in themselves and they knew how to get it over. And people can say all they want, but uh, Rick and Dick, Hey, that's good. Rick and Dick. Uh, Murdoch and, and Flair, they they understood the business and they understood why everybody was in it. It was a love. It was a passion. Back then, if you didn't love this business, if you didn't have a passion for it, you weren't going to last long. And I dare say today, if you don't have a passion for it, you won't last long either because it's still a grind. It's still hard work. But you loved the grind and you loved the hard work that went into it. You, you didn't mind going 200 miles uh, one way and then 200 miles back that night. It was, it was every minute of, of doing what you loved. And uh, that, that was a lot more prevalent back then, I think. 
Well, you, you mentioned a name that I don't uh, I want to get back to real quickly before we do run out of time. What you mentioned yeah. Roddy Piper. And I know that you work now you worked for the LaBelle's sort of early in your career and when they were sort of winding down. Were was Piper there at that time? That's where I first met Piper. He'd come in my uh I my first night for Mike LaBelle was in Fresno, California. Roddy came through the back door, raising hell, screaming at this guy because he got screwed on his money last night, something like that, whatever. Remember, he's yelling at this guy. I'm sitting in the chair, and he looks at me and goes, hi, Roddy Piper. I said, Tom Pritchard, and he went on yelling at the guy. That was it. But I, but I knew Roddy. He remembered that meeting, too, because we laughed about it later on. But, uh, yeah, Roddy was there, uh, not full-time, but he had just come in for shots to work with Andre that night, and I think he worked with Andre around the, the – territory then too but um yeah yeah that's where i met him that's crazy because that's sort of well that and portland i guess are the places where he really kind of became roddy piper you know but you know but you know where roddy became roddy piper was with gino garibaldi as the booker there that's what i've always heard and that's i've heard him put gino over Many, I think many, he, many he said that himself, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. That's what I mean. I've heard Roddy yeah. say that. And, and I never got the opportunity to meet Gino Garibaldi, but those are those kind of old pros that would give you an idea or talk to you or tell you a story and get your mind working, give you an idea and see what you would do with it. Yeah. So I'm jumping all over the place here, but it's because there's so many things that, you know, you, you've been through so many interesting places, but um, with Paul Bosch, now I, I meant to ask you because now you were when WWF did WrestleMania in Houston, you were there. I'm pretty positive, right? Yep. I know I was there. I remember now this was in the grand scheme of things, not that far removed actually from the Paul Bosch days now that we think about it. But I remember when we went in there and I was doing promotional materials and stuff, and that name still had a lot of weight in Houston, in the city of Houston. And I'm talking about with sponsors and advertisers, like people still knew him and revered him. And this is maybe like 14 years after he was out of business. And I remember we did like a, a newspaper thing with the, with the local paper. And it was the, the company, the furniture company there was that used to be the sponsor of his show. Gallery Forget furniture. the name. Right. Gallery Furniture. They Mack. They insisted on sponsoring that advertising section in the newspaper because of the memories they had of pro wrestling in the city of Houston. Mattress Mac is still uh, making news, national news. He bet like a million dollars on, uh, uh, I don't know which team it was, Kansas City this year. Well, I don't know. But but Mattress Mac is, is uh, still one of those guys when there's flood relief needed he'll have people come into his uh, showroom he's a community leader in houston uh and that was all due to he started with paul paul put him over on local uh, commercials just a small store he's got i think two or maybe maybe yeah two in houston now but uh he, he still invites people he still is very very involved in the community and that's that was uh he got to start with paul now at the time that um the because i want to mention too for people that don't know and maybe weren't watching uh, at the time or following it, Houston was this interesting territory because it was kind of I guess it was kind of like St. Louis, where it was just it was just that city, you know, and, and he was booking the talent from outside booking offices and doing, you know, all of his focus was on 
Sam Houston Coliseum, right? I mean, did they do any other, were there other shows besides the Sam Houston Coliseum? Well, later on, uh, his nephew Pete also booked uh, Galveston, Baytown, uh, Boston, Boston, Beaumont, Port Arthur, things like that. That was, that was later on. Um, I remember, I think it was, uh, gosh, 18 when I would go put out posters for Galveston or Port Arthur and stuff like that. But that was under the other promotion, uh, Southwest Sports, whatever it was that, that Pete, his nephew, uh, took out a license for. Now, I have to ask, and when I do stuff like this, <clears throat> it almost sounds like I'm doing like the old Chris Farley show bit from Saturday Night Live. Where, But were you there when... Um, uh, Harley Race lost the title to um, to Jack Briscoe in Houston. Were you around yes, for that? Amazing. I was certainly there. Yeah, I was certainly there. And uh, yeah, I, I have also. I was taking. See, I, I was taking pictures at twelve years old for Gong Magazine in Japan and some other wrestling news magazines here in the states. And Jack was presented with the belt there, the new belt, the red felt uh, NWA belt, as opposed to the one that. Uh, Harley beat Dory Jr. for. And there was a time when they had to refurbish the belt because of the felt got uh, messed up and they're going to put on leather now. I took a picture of Jack with the old NWA belt, the the Dory, the Dory belt, they called it, the O'Connor belt. Yeah. Um, so I had that picture, and Dick Bourne recently did a book on the uh the NWA. I I don't remember what they called it, but the Dory belt. And yeah. uh, so, so that was that was kind of one of those rare pictures because I've only seen one other uh, picture. So I was there for that too. You know, when Jack, I, I, so I have a picture of Jack with the belt in the book, uh, and and I was there for that historic night. I didn't know um, that was the first belt the NW actually owned was that the round the, the smaller one that Dory wore. Pat O'Connor was the first one to have that belt. Right, because before that, it was Thez's belt. He owned it, right? Right, right. So that, that's a little bit of history, too, that you go, hmm, so how did this happen? And then they never never found that belt. Uh, it got lost somehow. Uh, it, the story goes that it was on Sam Munchlick's mantle in his house, and somebody stole it oh, man. during his wife's uh, funeral or while they were all over the house. Who knows if that's true or not. In the book, it says that that never happened. But nobody's found the belt for so long, and that would be a really good archive find. I love that belt. And, and you know, because every, everybody loves and everybody talks about, you know, the famous domed globe belt, which was the one from basically, I guess, from Briscoe to like Flair in the 80s, yeah. right? About yeah. 10 years. That's the one. And, and the NWA today uses it, a replica of that as their belt. But yeah. I actually really love that that 60s early 70s belt i, I that's my favorite nwa title belt for well me. mine too did, did you know it had a nameplate on that belt no i didn't either but they do it has it had dory funk jr that was the last nameplate on it harley kept it on all the way through his reign i think harley only had it for like six or, or three months four months whatever I, may through uh july 20th 1973 I just think it's great. And it, and it made the, you know, and obviously I've seen, I don't even know if there's footage of that match out there. I'd love to see it, but I've oh, seen Jack photos. And, Jack and Harley from Houston. Is that, is yeah, that, no, out? no, no, there, there was no TV Nothing. that night. Yeah, well, and you know, the story before that where Dory was in the wreck and yes, on the ranch and things like that. And you know, the controversy allegedly, right. We allegedly, don't know. <laughs> right. And, and right. I, I mean, those, those are the stories that just, 
if you're a wrestling fan, it's fascinating to know the behind the scenes of that. And I got to talk to Dory about it. I got to talk to Harley about it. And they both had different sides. But either way, that's where this, this business comes from. And that's where it should uh, uh, still have some elements and some bit of the recipe in there for that old school feel. I just love the fact that they did this whole presentation right that night in Houston where Sam Mushnick comes out and he presents this brand new belt to Harley, you know, with the red and everything and a new design. And, and then he just promptly loses it that same night. I just think it was perfect, you know, but, but I, I, I read that Harley or, or he might've even said it. I don't remember now, but, but uh, I got to spend some time with Harley and Les Thatcher, we did a camp in Eldon, Missouri, and we stayed at the house. And I, I, I just had to talk to him about it. And it was said that he didn't even put it on before the match. He wanted Jack to be the first one to wear it, you know, because that was out of respect. He should have he should have won it uh, won it back in uh, whenever it was May or April or March. It was March when when Dory ran into the. Uh, uh, had the wreck on the ranch so well harley got to spend a lot of time with that belt a few years later anyway i mean he he carried it for the better part of of four years right and and you know you talked about um terry funk and harley wrestling in houston i have seen the toronto one which is yeah and i mean that is that's another one on that list that people need to watch and and thank god there is video footage of that harley race winning the NWA title from from Terry Funk in Toronto. And I think you've got Sam Muchnick on commentary for that match. It's crazy. No, I, I, I well, I've watched it. I haven't heard Sam on there. Maybe I, I heard maybe... an alternate version then. Could, could be. You know what it could be? Sometimes they would like rerun the match on TV and they'd have different commentary. Like I've That's seen true. it where it was definitely, it was Sam Muchnick and I think, Oh, who was he talking to? It was, I think it might've been like Whipper Billy Watson or something. Cause at some point he says to him, I was here back in the fifties when you won the title in this building. So I'm pretty, yeah. you know, it might've been like an alternate audio for it or something. Yeah. Very, very, very possible. Very possible. But before, before we wrap up though, I do want to give you a chance cause you mentioned it just offhand before. So now I'm interested to hear more for you to talk just a little bit about the, the wrestling school that you've got going now. Well, in Knoxville, Tennessee, Glenn Jacobs and I, uh, before Glenn actually won the Knox County mayor's race, uh, talked about doing a school and we thought we're both here. Why not? And uh, so we started the JPWA, Jacob Pritchard Wrestling Academy back in 2019. And then the next year we got hit with the COVID <laughs> like everybody else. And we shut down for, I think, four weeks, came back. And uh, uh, we're in our fourth year now. We just started our fourth year of January. So uh, it's it's website, if you're interested, just to find out what we have going on. It's jpwrestlingacademy.com. And uh, our next class actually starts April 4th and goes through June 24th. That's our spring class. And we have uh, a summer and a fall class as well. But jpwrestlingacademy.com is where if, uh, where you can go if you're interested in training for wrestling or just looking at some cool stuff. There you go. And, I mean, I would go out on a limb and say that you can hardly, for people listening, if that's what you're looking to get into, you could hardly expect to do any better than, than working with people like Tom, as you could even hear from listening to this, you know, people that – understand the history of the business and what works and why it works. I mean, these are the people you want to be around. 
This and is coming cool from thing, some, yeah, no. Yeah, and I was just going to say the cool thing is we've had people go to some of the different companies get signed around here, and we're having people wrestle in the uh, indies around Tennessee too. So we've been very fortunate in that aspect as well. And and if you're talented enough and, and have the uh, determination and the attitude, then uh, come see us, please. That's great. So, I mean, let's just say, I mean <laughs> – I always say I want to have you back. I mean, it happens a lot, but I definitely want to because, wow, I'm looking at even the list of things I wanted to talk about. And we didn't get to talk about Amarillo. We didn't get to talk about Memphis. We didn't get to talk about Continental, which is good because that means we could do another one down the road. Right. You got to keep them wanting more. Isn't that that's really important? Well, I hope so. Yes, so, I hope so. So that's what we'll do. And we'll have to do it again. And I can't thank you enough, really, for coming and, and sharing this knowledge and wisdom that you have. Always appreciate it. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it, too. There you have it, folks. A visit to the office of the one and only Doctor of Desire, Dr. Tom Pritchard. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Always a pleasure talking to Dr. Tom. Such great insights and memories. And honestly, really just. Uh, what a what a life in the wrestling business, uh, the, the amount of people that he's rubbed shoulders with and things that he's been a part of and seen. These are the kind of conversations and guests that uh, I want to have on this show and I want to continue to have. So that's the plan. We're just going to keep doing it. And so I want to tell you about some guests we got coming up next week. We are going to be having, uh, I've mentioned this before, the first installment of my series on um, former WWE corporate employees, people involved in the behind the scenes part of the business that a lot of fans don't always really even think about with some really interesting uh, stories and perspectives. So my first guest in that vein is going to be next week. Her name is Deborah Jazway, and she was a creative director and an art director um, for WWE. And if you're not quite clear what that job would entail, well, listen next week and you'll find out uh, when Deborah Jazway is my guest. Also, uh, plenty of others lined up now. I've been working overtime. We have Dave Dynasty coming up. We're going to be talking about Indianapolis wrestling and Dick the Bruiser with him. Um, Bertrand Bear, the author, of course, of some great wrestling biographies and, a, and an expert on Montreal wrestling history, Andre the Giant. Mad Dog Vashon, you name it, um, he's coming on. David Marquez, the great promoter, producer, announcer, uh, you name it, he is going to be coming up soon. Of course, we mentioned Rob Van Dam. I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you of that. Rob Van Dam, the author of the foreword to Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Rob Van Dam, we're going to be having that one where I'm saving it, actually, for the week of the book's release. So that'll be a few weeks uh, down the road that we'll be hearing from him. Uh, and of course, that book now is just weeks away. So you can pre-order your copy now. I want to make sure you guys realize that the book is available now for sale or pre-sale at Amazon.com. And I've been hearing from people who did pre-order who have gotten email assurances from Amazon that their book will be delivered, actually delivered on April 12th, uh, the day of release. So, I, I mean, I can't guarantee that for everyone, but I would urge you to pre-order. That way you get priority to get the book first. So that would be at Amazon.com. I believe BarnesandNoble.com is also doing you know, pre-orders. But I know that Amazon is where um, most people get their books online these days. 
Also, for this very podcast, um, you can listen to it a variety of ways. There's the homepage, suawpod.com, of course, the homepage of Shut Up and Wrestle. And we're also on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Podbean. We are wherever you get great podcasts. Um, You can find me and you can find this podcast. Um, The magazines that I work on, of course, I mentioned earlier in the show, Inside the Ropes magazine. You can get that at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And of course, the venerable, the granddaddy of them all, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which I've been proud to be a contributor to for years. You can get Pro Wrestling Illustrated in print or digital form at getpwi.com. As for me, of course, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Uh, Facebook, if you look me up on Facebook, Pro Wrestling FAQ is the page that I maintain on there where I put a lot of my wrestling-related content. And on any of those platforms, you could also find links to uh, my author webpage. So I am very easily available and easy to be found. So uh, once again, as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to never put off till tomorrow what you can put off till the next day. So long, wrestling fans. 